But first, we kick it off with ICBC. My guest is Jazz Johal, BC Liberal MLA, Vancouver Kingsway's liberal critic for uh, ICBC. You're not Vancouver Kingsway. What's Richmond, your... Queensboro. Richmond, Queensboro. Okay. Uh, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the announcement this week that uh, ICBC road tests are, are going to start again. You got to be happy, right? You're oh. going to give David Eby a big pat in the back here now, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I'd say about time. That's <laughs> okay. what I'd say. I was I was happy when I heard uh, yesterday. I mean, you know, we we've uh, had this conversation around commercial licensing, so it's great that for Class Five we can finally get on with it. But ICBC does about you know twenty thousand tests a month, roughly. About fifty percent are Class Five. So think about the fact that you got new immigrants. You got young people who need those tests, who want to go out and find work. Yeah. In today's society, you need that mobility. Never mind, you know, Vancouver, Victoria, you got some transit to get around, but you're sitting in Cranbrook, you're sitting in Williams Lake. The only way you're going to get around is if you have a license. So uh, I'm really glad they started. Uh, it's uh, my only question. Too late, be, though. They should have yeah. done it earlier, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we just, we're going through a pandemic, though, right? I mean, they, they, had, to, they had to cut it back. I, I mean, they were, right just, to, they were right to stop the road tests, right? Yeah, ICBC was just slow on a lot of this stuff, like starting yeah. up again. That's been my frustration is if Manitoba and Saskatchewan had been doing this a month before us, why couldn't we have gotten up and going? You know, that's the challenge. I had dri- I renewed my driver's license at the ICBC office in Richmond. Good service. They did a good job there. But in regards to the licensing side, in regards to just getting your tests, it's been quite frustrating. I mean, you had a, a gentleman on from Quinnell who drives a fruit truck. Yes. I mean, this, yes. this guy makes the bulk of his uh, income uh, over three or four months. So this is about livelihood for people. So I'm glad they got it going. I was just frustrated that it took so long. Yeah, okay. Like, uh, So EB is saying yesterday they're going to re- resume uh, road tests on July 20th. I mean, even that's another delay. This is another two weeks. Oh, yeah. no. I've, like, let's get going here. We are, I think it's 55,000 tests that they haven't that's done right. over, yes. over four, four, uh, four months. So yeah. the backlog is significant. Never mind every month, add another 9,000 people to that number. So this is going to go on for the rest of this year in regards to dealing with this backlog and and making sure people can get How long is it going to take? Like, how long you got to wait now? Well, this is going to be four or five months. So if you're already wait, if you've already been booked and they canceled on you, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get to the front of the line. Yeah, so the people who got canceled first, they get served first, right? Now, but if you, if let's say you fail that first time, and it does happen, yeah, you're going to go to the end of the line. So you, there's going to be, a, that could be another four or five months, right? So there's a huge challenge here. You better pass. If, if you're going for your driver's license, your driver's test, you better pass the first time. You're going to have a long wait. Yeah, four or five months of this stuff. Like yeah. literally, if you you get a you get a test, let's say on week one, you fail. Yeah, you could be waiting till October for the second test. Right. that's the challenge. If you're trying to look for work or trying to get around, it's it's a huge challenge. Okay, here's something I think is really interesting. Uh, yesterday on Jill Bennett's show, I was listening to uh, Steve Wallace, who uh, you may know him. He's yeah. he runs a driving school. He used to be a he used to, he used to be the mayor mayor in BC and head of the UBCM. Anyway, he's a real interesting guy. Very outspoken on uh, ICBC. He says that. The, the backlog in all these tests has severely impacted his business, which you can understand. The guy runs a driving school. He said, look, let us help you clear up this backlog. Let these accredited driving schools, okay, so not some fly-by-night little, little driving school, but an accredited school, uh, let us help you do these tests. We'll, we'll give, empower us to do the road test for you on behalf of ICBC, and that way we can clear up these backlogs. Do you think that's a good idea? Oh, hang on a sec, Jazz. I'm just, just in my ear here. We got some breaking news. Let's go to the newsroom right now. Breaking news. This is a- 
This is Terry Shins in from the newsroom updating one of our top stories today. Vancouver police now confirming to our newsroom they are investigating the city's sixth and seventh homicides of 2020. The murders happened near Commercial Drive and East 11th Avenue overnight. Police got a 911 call around 12.30 this morning about two males who had been shot inside a residence. BC Ambulance Service attended with Vancouver police and confirmed both males were deceased. Ceased. Vancouver police detectives are on scene. They are investigating and they say the investigation is in that early stage. But again, a lot of police activity around Commercial Drive and East 11th. Vancouver police now confirming they are investigating the city's sixth and seventh homicides of 2020. More information at the bottom of the hour. All right, Terry, thank you for that breaking news. And that's why you always keep it locked here, because as soon as we know, you know, and we will bring you those breaking news as soon as we get a big story like that. So the uh, uh, two confirmed homicides there of Vancouver police on the scene, Commercial Drive and East 11th, two homicides over overnight, two men shot. All right, back to my conversation now with liberal ICBC critic Jazz Johal. Okay, so what do you think of that idea? Like, let driving schools do these road tests. You think that's a good idea? I think it's ICBC has to look at um, those types of ideas at this point. We're in a once-in-century pandemic, and so there's a COVID period where we had to obviously lock down. But to me, this post-COVID period is all about economic recovery. We have 350,000 unemployed British Columbians. We've got potentially 20 to 30,000 small businesses in British Columbia, according to the BCBC, Business Council of British Columbia, that may go bankrupt by the end of next year. Yeah. So economic recovery is significant. And an economic recovery doesn't happen unless there's mobility. So right now, and ICBC said we'll hire more examiners. I get that. Yeah. But you have these small businesses out there, if they're accredited, as you say, let's talk to them. If it's possible to do, and we can clear this backlog, and Mr. EB's already said it could take four or five months. To can we can we trust them though to do it? Like okay, if they're running a driving school and you know they're maybe you got somebody who wants to do a favor for their client that has paid them hundreds of dollars for driving lessons and we'll give you a well, pass. We'll, we'll give if you, a if pass. you have a long history with some of these companies that have yeah. a long history with ICBC a relationship you built with them, pick one or two in a community that you really trust and you can work with. And if that gives you an extra ten or twenty uh, tests a week, it's significant, right? Yeah. So they are hiring more examiners, which is good. But if you're able to do that in areas of significant backlog let's look at that yeah right? i think we should look at it I, yeah. I think it's an interesting idea and when we open the phone lines we'll see what people think about it let me ask about some other icbc stuff going on the legislature is in session right mm-hmm. you've got the the no fault auto insurance bill in front of the house today Potentially later this afternoon, okay. and we're in the committee stage, which is the third stage where you go yeah. line by line. So the challenge we have with this... Where do you guys stand on uh, no-fault auto insurance? Well, right now, the problem with this bill is that they what they want to do is basically say, sign this blank check, and we'll fill it out later, because all of it is going to come out in regulation. So to decide how they're going to shape no-fault later, based on negotiations with massage therapists and everything else uh, in regards to the system, the challenge with no-fault is... Mike Smith gets into an accident, you are forever within that ICBC system. They'll decide, an examiner will decide what your injury is going to be like, and they're going to decide the treatment within the system, kind of like WorkSafe BC. Um, so the flexibility uh, is, is gone. And if that type of system can be explained to me when I'm going through a bill, Let's look at it. Then we'll decide whether they're going to support you. But we're going to decide that later, and that's the challenge. So you guys are standing with the lawyers then, the, current, no, no. the personal no, no, injury no. lawyers. In Saskatchewan, they have both systems, right? Yeah. You have 
you can decide if you want a lawyer to represent you. You pay a little bit more. You pay three, four hundred dollars extra. A you year. pay more if you want. If you want to retain your right to sue. Sue. Yeah. Or you can pay a little bit less and get no fault. Be, you get no fault. Okay. So that's, you think that's system, what we should do here. That's the system we should be looking at, right? It gives you the and it's choice. Once again, it comes down to choice. This annoys me because if I say as as a party, as a, as opposition, say, okay, we'll support you. They're not frigging this stuff up until later, and that's the challenge. Huh. If a student, let's say, gets into an accident at 22, they're going to decide the compensation for that poor student based on the income that student's making now, not saying, well, that yeah. person's going to graduate, and they could be making triple what they make today. They're going to decide compensation based on the income you have today, and I don't okay. believe that's fair. Those are the kind of things that we have to go through in regards to the details. Okay, let me ask you real quick, and then we'll take a break and take some phone calls here. But um, ICBC has already admitted the accident rate in British Columbia is down because there, there, there have been fewer people driving during the pandemic. I think traffic is starting to pick up now, though. But anyway, they, they, they probably saved a lot of money because there were fewer accidents in British Columbia. Should ICBC give drivers a rebate? Because ICBC saving a lot of money with less fewer accidents. Damn straight they should. Right? <laughs> I mean, why did I know you were going to say that? Well, first of all, in Ontario, <laughs> you got you got private insurance there. The rebates have averaged about one hundred and fifty dollars uh, for the average rate payer. Wow, not bad. In Manitoba, public system a little different, but the rate the rebates have been one hundred and forty to one hundred and sixty. It's a well, public insurer, and they've mailed the checks out already, wow. so people have already received the money. Hmm. ICBC's already admitted they've had about fifty thousand less accidents right. up until uh, June third, I think it was, so mid March to June. So that's about one hundred and fifty or one hundred and seventy million they've saved. Wow! Right? Yeah. But they Give me say, some of that money back. Give I some of that it, money back I to drivers, Mike. I think it's even more than that. I think yeah. they're uh, they're they're really playing conservative in regards to the numbers, that money should be returned. Okay. So I'm going to introduce a private member's bill either tomorrow or early next week on this issue that whatever money ICBC has saved, it should be returned to the people of British cool. Columbia. I like it. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith, my guest is Jazz Johal. He's the liberal ICBC critic. We're talking about ICBC road tests starting again. Should you get a rebate from ICBC with the accident rate down? No fault auto insurance, 604-280-9898. Call me up on any of that, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on, on your cell. David Eby, of course, is the Attorney General. He's the minister responsible for ICBC. He was on the Jill Bennett Show yesterday I'm talking about road tests back up and running again. Here's what he said. Uh, and this week, uh, enough PPP, enough personal protective equipment has been obtained to move to the next level of testing. So this week... Uh, motorcycle testing is going to resume. Uh, testing for recreational trailer uh, licenses will resume this weekend. Also, uh, what are called enhanced road assessments. These are people with uh, medical issues or have been referred by law enforcement for additional testing. Um, we'll also uh, be starting this week. And also, ICBC will be calling customers who had road tests canceled in March uh, to start rebooking them for full uh, driver's license testing that will be uh, starting up on July 20th. Okay, July 20th, as we mentioned earlier, still got a couple of weeks to go, so more mass, than two weeks. Massive backlog. 55,000 yeah. tests uh, have been missed. So you just get a, and on top of the 9,000 that are added every month to those tests, gives you a sense of how big this problem is for the rest of this year. I wonder if I wonder if the government would seriously consider this idea of letting accredited driving schools do the tests. 
Well, like I, they might they might give it sort of lip service and say, yeah, we'll consider it. But I wonder if they would really do it because I think that's actually a big move if they do that. No, I I, I think if you have a long term relationship with some of these driving schools, let's look at that in, in areas that in pockets where there's really is a massive backlog. Yeah, I think that's where you have got to be doing this. We have accredited uh, 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 garages that do ICBC repairs. Well, sure, if, if right. You have, if you have long term, if you have long term relationships with some of these places, yeah, if it's a fly by night or a new operation, perhaps not. But if you had a driving school that you've, you've had a relationship for 20 years let's accredited see i mean yeah. there is an accreditation program for a small percentage of schools yes. okay that go through an accreditation process you let them do it 604-280-9898 is the number to call me star 9898 toll free on yourself let's go to your calls larry in port moody hi Lori. sorry Lori. Lori. Hi, Hi, no problem. Um, yeah, you know, uh, most legitimate driving schools are accredited. They may not be to the GLP standards that we do here refer to with Wallace, but uh, Jazz is right. There are ones you can trust and ones you can't. And um, one of the telltale signs right now of a trustworthy one is, are they out there giving lessons without PPE? There's a, it's amazing yeah. how many of them are doing that right now. Um, but anyways, I did want to make... Allowed, are they allowed to give lessons now? Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. But you got to yeah, have PPE. I, PPE, and sometimes, you know, the challenge we've had with driving schools is do you put in a, a screen in between the instructor and the, the, the driver? Uh, a lot of these commercial um, uh, driving schools especially, it was really frustrating for them. So a lot of their clients obviously need to be working very quickly. And so this you is an ongoing frustration. Screen. Yeah, it's a yeah huge I don't see how you could put a screen for safety's sake. But one of the suggestions I just wanted to put out there, sure. because I do know a lot of people that are retired driver examiners of ICBC, is um, call them. Call them up. Because I know for a fact that somebody's phone isn't ringing. So why not? Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe you should call them because I know ICBC. Thank you for the call, Lori, by the way. Because I, I, they say they're hiring, right? Yeah. So if you're a retired uh, driving uh, examiner, maybe you, you want to go back to work. Maybe that was a good time to call ICBC. Well, that, they're hiring. That's a great idea. That's a great yeah. idea. They've they've done it before and they know what they're doing and, and sure. ramping up quickly. They is, need people. Need. Yeah. Rick in Vancouver. Hi. Got a minute left. Hi. Hi. One question for you, Jazz. If private insurance takes over, are they going to be taking on the licensing and the driver testing? Because all that's been downloaded on ICBC. The other quick question I have for you is, if you maintain the tort system, what are you going to do to limit what these lawyers charge for their settlements? If I get a $3 million settlement, they get a million dollars. Is that fair, Jazz? Okay, we got a minute. There's yeah. a lot of ground yeah. to cover in a minute. <laughs> Go ahead, Jazz. Uh, in regards to the, the private system, what I've said is choice. If you can build choice into a public system, let's build that choice into the public system. Uh, I think that's been the challenge. In regards to the, the legal issue, uh, some of these cases, like, cost uh, go for two or three years and that's been the challenge yeah. so who's fronting all that the lawyers are uh and but the public also want uh, if you're going to be suing you want a good lawyer so the access to that law that that lawyer means you're going to have to pay 30 percent of perhaps of whatever the the the, the, the do you think do you think drivers have. should have choice in auto insurance to be able to buy a basic auto insurance from a private insurance company i i, I think choice if that if you can uh, implement public and private let's look at it because I, I i'm yeah. not against having a public system i just want more choice i mean we are yeah. still having debates about online like this should have been done a long time ago, yeah. right? That's and, another thing. And so, done choice years ago. to me isn't dismantling the public system. Choice is can you inflict choice within this particular system, or do we need to look at other systems around the world? That's what I've been saying. Isn't just going to be private. And let's go back to the lawyers just for a second. It's about 
providing choice for people. What that means to me is that if you have to sue, and most people cannot afford lawyers uh, at, at the cost that they are these days, so that's where okay. you have to give up 30% of those earnings sometimes. That's the choice. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. All right. That's Jazz Johal, Liberal MLA. He's the Liberal critic for ICBC. Thanks a lot for all your calls on the open line. All right. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about electric vehicles now and the right to charge movement. If you live in an apartment building, a condo building, a, a, a strata building, should you have the right to have a charging station in your parking spot for your electric vehicle? My guest is David Grove. He's the president of the Victoria Electric Vehicle Association. David, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me. You bet. You guys had an, a rally at the B.C. legislature yesterday. There were lots of electric vehicles uh, driving around the legislature, tooting their horns. Uh, tell me about this right-to-charge movement. What are you guys looking for there? Yeah, well, the rally yesterday was a big success. We had a, uh, the, the official count now is 88 cars. But right. um, we uh, have enough vehicles now to let everyone know, you know, we're here and growing rapidly. The right-to-charge idea is to support people who live in uh, situations where they don't necessarily have a, play, a handy plug-in. So if you're at a house, you can install your own charger, but in a condo building or a tenant rental building, uh, there's often a, a resistance to installing these systems. And for some reason, even when the owner is willing to pay for the installation and the uh, electricity used. So our idea is to uh, have the government pass a right-to-charge legislation, uh, which would be an amendment to the strata and tenancy regulations, and that would uh, give everyone access to EV charging outlets in a, a, a fair manner. Okay, I know some other jurisdictions have passed right-to-charge laws, which would make it illegal for a landlord or a condo building or a strata council to say to tell you, no, you can't have a charging station in, in your parking spot. Um, what is the situation? Haven't have some municipalities in British Columbia passed some right to charge legislation? Like in Vancouver, didn't they do that? Yeah, and uh, Saanich and uh, some other jurisdictions are doing uh, various things, uh, uh, passing various uh, bylaws this way. Yeah, it would mean, especially uh, in conjunction with municipal zoning bylaws, a situation where new builds would have a hundred percent EV infrastructure capability. Right. which would future-proof these properties so we don't face these expensive retrofits. Yeah, how the much can it... charge itself, sorry. Yeah, how much can it cost to to put in a charging station in, in your, your parking spot in, in, say, an apartment building or something? Yeah, I, I don't have the numbers on that. There's various companies that are pursuing that. I think in a new building, the cost would definitely be uh, thousands of dollars, but I don't have yeah. a number... Uh, these I mean, it can be th- it can be thousands of dollars. It can be thousands of dollars, though I believe. Oh, it would right. be thousands. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think part of this uh, whole notion is that everyone uh, shares the expense. And don't forget, if you purchase a condo building with the EV infrastructure in place, that increases the value of that property. Anybody who would invest, let's say, in a retrofit, will presumably, in a reasonable time, recoup that investment. Right. How how often do you hear from people who have trouble like this? Let's say they live in an apartment, they live in a condo or something, and they have a landlord or a strata council saying, telling them, no, you can't put in a, a charging station. Do you hear that a lot? Yeah, yeah, that's our major uh, major issue right now. I think the numbers are somewhere between 40 and 60% of potential EV car owners are faced with this issue. And as uh, 
causing uh, their delay in their adoption of an electric car. Right. Okay. How many people are driving electric cars uh, these days? Is it catching on? Are more people buying them? Oh, yeah. It's growing rapidly. It's at uh, 4,000 in uh, the lower island here, uh, some odd number like that, um, 30 to 40,000 in B.C. And if you look at the percentage growth rate, it's very rapid. And the percentage, for instance, with the zero emissions vehicle mandate of the province, right. we're basically already at the number of EV car ownerships uh, as we projected for 2025. Okay, so that's also part of our right to charge thing is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We just need to encourage mm-hmm. more cars, EVs, and a faster adoption rate. So we're hoping the province will draw that back five years, their targets. Right. Speaking to David Grove, he's the president of the Victoria Electric Vehicle Association, and we're talking about the right to charge campaign by vehicle, electric vehicle owners. Uh, what is the advantage of driving an ele- electric vehicle in your mind? Like for people who are out there, I'm sure there are a lot of people that goes through their mind, hmm, you know, next time maybe I'll buy an electric vehicle. I'm thinking of doing it. Maybe I will. What is the advantage of it? Why do you think it's a good thing? Well, for me, it's uh, clean, quiet, smooth, uh, have very good performance and the cost of fueling is much less expensive than gas and the maintenance cost is lower. So it's also less expensive to the point where the additional cost today of an electric vehicle between its comparable gas vehicle is such that a payback in, I don't know, it depends on how much you drive. The more you drive, the quicker it pays back, but say three years even um that differential will change also with more cars will be more competitive pricing and battery prices are dropping quickly which is a big component so electric vehicles and also the clean aspect for me is huge i had someone from nanaimo at the rally yesterday said boy it's been sure nice to be able to see vancouver from nanaimo for the last couple of months Mm. and i think that's an indication of how clean air could really make a difference for us all and this is a big element of it yeah. Um, what about the rebates, the government rebates that were on offer for quite a long time? Are there still rebates available if people decide to buy an electric vehicle, or have some of those rebates been cancelled or scaled back? Yeah, there's a uh, provincial rebate of $3,000. Okay. There's a, uh, this is on new, uh, new EV purchase, and $5,000 federal. And then there's a program called the Scrap It program, and you have to really check to make sure it's available because they have limited numbers each year. But they have been topping up those funds so uh, uh, annually. So that's a six thousand dollars against an old gas car that you may have that can be right. proven to be scrapped. You get six thousand. So it could be up to fourteen thousand off the purchase price of a new EV. Okay. Uh, used EVs, I believe, the Scrap It is worth three thousand. And there's some money in there, too, for electric bikes, electric motorbikes, and also even the charging device that you put in the garage of your home or, indeed, in your uh, condo building. And there's some uh, rebate money available there for both the purchase of the unit and the installation cost. Okay, speaking of those charging stations in, in, let's say, a condo unit and a condo garage, what exactly would you guys like to see the provincial government do? Would you would you like to make it like to see the government make it make it a law and mandatory in in BC that if you build a new apartment or condo building, it must include infrastructure for electric vehicle charging? Is that what you want? Yeah, I think that'd be great. 
yeah. right to charge uh, is sort of the leading uh, notion. Then if you have that in the re- uh, regulations that provides access to EV charging outlets, strata councils and apartment landlords would then be obligated to work with tenants who wanted that to happen. Yeah. For new builds, that could be uh, worked into the, the zoning amendments uh, that would allow for those requirements to exist. And that would be not just condos and apartments, but also uh, residential. And you could also then state what requirements might be required be uh, in the interest of right. a commercial setting. Wouldn't it be more expensive though? Like, let, let's say I live in a in a strata building, I live in a condo unit, but I don't drive an electric vehicle, and I have no interest or plans to buy a, an electric vehicle. If, if will my condo fees or my strata fees go up? if the building is required to put in electric infrastructure that I'm not even going to use? Yeah, I'm not sure of the uh, details of that, except that to say, if you were, the existence of that infrastructure then becomes part of the cost of the unit and you would recoup that upon mm-hmm. sale. The ongoing costs of the fueling of those units uh, would typically be borne by the users of the system. Because new technology is available in your utility room, there's... Uh, uh, there would be technology there that would break out the billing to each individual unit that uh, owns an EV and presumably yeah. the maintenance and perhaps even uh, in staged situations, the installation costs would be borne on uh, some sort of a pro, pro rata basis for uh, the people that own the cars, not the ones that don't. Right. Yeah. So you can make it like a user pay system. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's yeah. say... Um, Let's say a landlord or a strata council says, no, you're not allowed to install a charging station in your parking spot at the, at the condo. Like, even if, do they, do they say that sometimes, even if I'm going to pay for it? Like, let's say yeah, I say, I, yeah, like I want to, I want a charging station in my parking spot and you don't have to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it myself. They can, they sometimes will still say no. Yes. Credit councils and apartment landlords routinely deny access even when EV owners are willing to pay for both installation of and the ongoing costs of those systems. All right. This is partly why we feel that there needs to be a right to charge amendment to this to the uh, strata and tenancy regulations simply to pave the way for the adoption of more EVs. This would lead directly to the manufacturer's needing to build more EVs in numbers and in model types and in price points and be more competitive, bringing the price down, which would accelerate the adoption of EVs rapidly, which is, I guess, the driving uh, notion behind the... All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith here. Let's talk a little real estate now. The metro, uh, the Vancouver real estate market made headlines this past week with a huge 64% increase in sales on a month-to-month basis. So people are buying again, but interesting uh, inventory numbers out there. There's a supply crunch going on as well. Let's check in with Steve Soretsky now. He's a real estate analyst. VanCityCondoGuide.com is his website. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Steve. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So let's talk about the uh, the number of sales uh, month to month. What are the details there? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's obviously like a huge jump, but I think, you know, it's important to kind of contextualize all of these numbers. So basically, April and May are typically, you know, that's the spring selling season. Those are typically your 
uh, busiest months in terms of sales volumes um, on average. And so basically in April and May, we had record low sales volumes um, for those two months. So um, not surprising given the social distancing sort of stay-at-home measures. And so we kind of had, I guess you can call it a bit of pent-up demand in June, where people that maybe would have bought in April and May uh, came out and pulled the trigger uh, hence the huge increase on a, on a month-over-month basis. But if you actually look at it really from like a historical perspective, it's probably not you know something to overly write home about. Uh, June sales, I believe, on the 10-year average were still down about 21% below that 10-year average. So, wow. uh, again, really important to kind of contextualize the numbers. Okay, I think that is some good context for sure for people to realize that in, in May, in uh, April and May, sales were uh, pretty much... A- a total dud and are those usually some of the strongest sales months of the year typically in the past yeah so sales volume generally speaking peak in either april or may almost every year so that's you know your spring market everyone's out there house hunting shopping um so those months were basically put on hold they didn't almost didn't exist this year um so what i think is kind of like well your, your spring market which was normally april may is kind of shifted to june and probably july as well um, so I think that those should be June and July could end up being some of our busier months this year. Okay, so June sales are up from previous months, but as you mentioned, still pretty low comparatively over the last ten years. If you do a ten-year rolling average, is it is it though? I mean, what what are what's the vibe in the market right now? Are people looking at that June uptick and saying, okay, we're still low? On a, on a 10-year basis, but at least we're seeing some comeback here? Are people thinking that we're coming back to some sort of vibrancy in this market? Yeah, I think so. I think that, I think it's like, again, I think that people's kind of expectations, I think people have, you know, sort of live in the moment, sort of short-term uh, thought processes. But basically, when you think about it, it's like, you know, the initial reaction when COVID kind of broke out and the economy is going into shutdown mode and you know, the end of March, early April, is everyone kind of thought, okay, well, the housing market's going to crash and it's going to crash overnight. I'm going to get a discount of 10, 15%, you know, next week. And it's like, well, you have to understand, it's not really like how housing markets move. You know, you have to wait for inventory to build. Sellers are reluctant to cut their prices, et cetera. And so I think the big driver right now is it's been a little bit surprising somewhat to see that inventory has uh, collapsed as well. So new listings in April and May were near hi- uh, historic lows. And, you know, pre-COVID, we already had low low supply levels as well. So, I mean, if you look at the detached housing market, you know, you're hearing a lot of people saying, oh, like multiple offers, everyone wants a house. And, you know, the real driver of that is not so much that you have a huge demand for houses that, you know, sales are way, way up. The, the big driver is that inventory for detached houses in greater Vancouver is near multi-decade lows. Um, basically, again, because people aren't basically people haven't been listing their houses for sale. Yeah. Okay. And, and is that because what sellers are just staying on the sidelines and just seeing how this all shakes out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you think about it kind of thoroughly, I mean, I, I think that people have basically been told um, to sort of stay at home. Um, yeah. You know, the government's kind of come out and said, "Hey, listen, everyone, kind of go into your homes." Um, you know, we are not going to kick anyone out for rental evictions. If you need a mortgage deferral, uh, you know, please go ahead and take one. Uh, oh, you lost your job. Okay, here's $2,000 check. So everyone's just kind of like, listen, just kind of hunker down here, stay at home. So it's really like, I mean, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to, to try to sell your house in April or May unless you absolutely wanted to or had to. Right. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that's kind of the mandate now as we're starting to, to reopen. You can see that new listings are obviously picking up. 
Um, but certainly, you know, it's not going to change the inventory picture overnight. Right. Um, if the inventory picture does change, it, it'll take many months. Now, what a weird market. I mean, have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, this is kind of like I, hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime type pandemic that we're suffering through here, and it's impacted basically every phase of our lives to a great degree, including this real estate market. Boy, this is a weird market. What, what are your thoughts on it overall? I mean, is this just a, like a, just a bizarre once-in-a-lifetime thing? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's uh, extremely challenging to, to navigate. I think if you talk to anyone that's in the industry that's trying to advise their clients right now, I think they'll all tell you it's like it's so hit or miss right now. There's segments of the market that are doing really quite strong. Uh, there's segments that are not doing great. Um, you know, downtown condos, for example, that's one of the softer areas of the market, um, you know, which again was probably one of the stronger markets pre COVID. So uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. It feels like things are kind of changing almost on a weekly basis. So to kind of draw, to try to draw any sort of conclusions as to what the outlook is going to be um, for the rest of the year, um, you know, a couple months into a pandemic, I, I think is, is, is right. real sighted. What are uh, speaking of Steve Soretsky, VanCityCondoGuide.com, What are the what are prices like out there right now? Uh, again, it's really all over the place. Um, for for the detach for 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 example, for an entry level detached house, um, I, I would say in a lot of segments you're you're basically at all time highs or or like you're kind of touching the 2017 highs kind of thing. Um, you know, again now for downtown condos, I mean you can be down five ten percent from kind of peak pricing so um really just a hit or miss market it's, it's all over the place I mean, obviously the luxury market took in over the last few years um, that hasn't really recovered um so yeah it's really just all over the place okay downtown condos you mentioned you described that soft market there what's going on there what's driving that uh i think part of it is a behavioral shift i mean i think that obviously a lot of the purchases downtown for example would typically skews towards investors. I think a lot of the investors right now are, are gun shy. Um, you have, you know, sort of this insurance crisis that's kind of hanging over everyone's head trying to figure it out. And I think realistically, I think there's also been, there has been a shift for sure in terms of um, consumer sentiment that, you know, well, sell, sell the condo downtown and move out to the suburbs where I can work from home and have more space. Um, that definitely seems to be a trend that we're seeing. Um, again, is that going to be a sustainable trend over the next 12 to 18 months? Um, that, that remains to be seen. But certainly, I think that's what's happening right now. What's going on with interest rates? Uh, nice and low for anyone yeah, that's uh, yeah. yeah trying to leverage that. I mean, you have mortgage rates touching, I think, all-time lows. Uh, you know, you can get a five-year fix just over 2%. Um, so, I mean, it's basically free money. Right. How about the uh, in terms of any government government policy changes on uh, down payments or stress tests? Have there been any changes there that have impacted the market? Not really. I mean, CMHC has obviously tightened some of their uh, restrictions for for insured borrowers, but I mean, the other two insurers didn't follow suit. So I don't really expect that to have really any material impact on the housing market here. Um, I think the big question is really going to come down to deferrals, which will begin to expire in Q4 of this year. Uh, 15% of all mortgages across Canada are in deferral. So some, something's going to have to be done with those. Um, again, I don't know how that all plays out, but I think that uh, obviously, of course, we're going to see um, more delinquent uh, mortgages and, and you're going to see a rise in foreclosures. But I think that's more of a 2021 story than it is uh, a 2020 story. 
All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about Metro Vancouver real estate, my guest, Steve Soretsky, he's a real estate analyst. VanCityCondoGuide.com is his website. You have a question about real estate, phone me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 uh, toll-free on your cell. Are you in this real estate market? Maybe you're looking to buy a place. Maybe you're thinking of selling your home or your house or condo right now. Star 9898 on your cell. Call me with your comment or question. Steve, uh, when you take a look around the region uh, in this market, you mentioned downtown Vancouver condos, uh, pretty soft market right now. What about the rest of the region? Are there any parts of Metro Vancouver that are sort of doing, have a different market from other parts of the region? I think honestly, like I think every sub area is doing like slightly different. It's kind of never been a more like segmented market where it's like it's impossible just to try and to try to draw like a a broad stroke and just say you know here's what's happening across all these segments. I think that again it's it's um, it's changing honestly on a on a almost on a weekly basis in every area. Every price point has is, is slightly different. So I think kind of navigating it right now uh, is definitely uh, pretty tricky and. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I would say. Well, we're going through a difficult economy here right now, to say the least, with, with this pandemic. A lot of people have lost their jobs. You mentioned uh, mortgage deferrals. What, what is that, a mortgage deferral? Is that the, that's not the same as a default, right? No, no. It's basically yeah. like they essentially pause like your, your payments for your mortgage, and uh, a lot of the big banks are allowing you up to, up to six months to do that. Uh, so it's basically a six-month holiday, essentially, um, before you actually have to begin presume paying that mortgage uh so certainly that helps uh, anyone that might be in, in distress so i think it's kind of again i think it's kept people in their homes and um, certainly yeah. mitigated a lot of the economic pain but again this will have to be resolved at some point you know you're not going to be able to defer this indefinitely yeah have the banks been pretty cooperative with people who are struggling and they ask for a mortgage deferral because i've heard stories from people who say they they lost their job. They went to the bank. They asked for a deferral. The bank said no. I mean, sometimes the banks can sound like they're being generous and big-hearted, but then when you sit down and actually try to get this a deferral, it can be uh, easier said than done. What What are you hearing? I mean, I think I would say for the most part, it seems like they're they're pretty generous, and I know people as well that uh, realistically don't need a deferral, and they're taking advantage of it just because they know it's it's on the table. Um, but you know, these guys are deferring credit card payments as well, and and uh, you know, why credit payments? So you know, it's certainly again, it's, it's helped mitigate a lot of the the pain or the damage. Um, but um, you know, again, um, I think we'll have a better outlook in Q4 of okay, well, who really needs a deferral? Um, and if they did, are they able to get their job back and able to get back up on their feet? Or is this going to be um, a bit of a problem for some and, and you're going to see some hardship uh, you know, towards the end of the year and into 2021? Speaking of Steve Soretsky, Van City Condo Guide. Steve, we hear a lot about uh, condo insurance and skyrocketing insurance and, and the stress that that's putting on stratas uh the bc government is, is looking at that right now there are lots of calls for reform has that affected this market at all in terms of people looking to buy a condo i want is that a factor i wonder maybe with this soft condo market downtown i think that pre-covid it, it didn't i think people just maybe didn't really care because the market was pretty hot and um you know everyone just kind of wanted to get in um but i think now it's just as the market slowed down and people have kind of time to digest their thoughts and more and more news is coming out about 
you know, the insurance and whatnot. I think that it is certainly deterring some people or they're a little bit more hesitant. Uh, so people are really kind of looking at, uh, you know, people are looking at the insurance uh, for every building, asking how much it's gone up, what's the insurance premiums, and then looking at the strata fee, right? So yeah. a lot of buildings are having to reflect the increases in, in an increase in the strata maintenance fee. And so again, it's, you know, not to, it's not uncommon to see a strata fee, you know, go up by 50 bucks or a hundred bucks a month. Uh, which again, you know, needs to be factored into the overall uh, debt servicing cost. Yeah, when you take a look at some of the numbers in this market, and uh, your your email blast that comes out frequently is, has done a good job in kind of analyzing it and where we're at right now. We saw the the large uh, uptick in month over month sales in the month of June, but as as you pointed out, historically still low comparatively. How is the when we're suffering through this pandemic and like you said, people being told to shelter or stay home? How does that affect uh, trying to sell a house? Like, how do you sell a house during a pandemic? Is it all got to be done online through Zoom meetings or FaceTime? How do you how do you do that? Uh, no, I think we're just vetting people a little bit more so that you're mm-hmm. seeing like a lot more of the virtual tours being done online. And then if someone's genuinely interested after that, then they set up a private showing. Everybody comes in. You're you know you're wearing masks and. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ask to be kind of careful with, you know, touching too many things in the house sort of thing. Um, And again, like you have some sellers that are, you know, maybe younger and don't uh, aren't as concerned and, and, you know, they don't mind people coming through. And then you have, you know, some people that are are much more concerned and they're kind of vetting every single person. And um, so, yeah, it's definitely a little bit more challenging because like there's no open houses. It's not like you just, you know do an open house, send 20 groups of buyers through and then take offers on a Monday. It's like, it's definitely more of a process where, uh, again, it's all private showings at this point. Okay, Steve, last question for you. When you take a look at this market, we're just going through such a bizarre and weird time right now. What is your outlook for the rest of 2020 right now? Uh, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be volatile. I think that, um, you know, it's much too soon to draw any conclusions. I think the real test, in my opinion, and I said this from the start, it's going to be uh, closer to Q4 as these deferrals start to come off. What is the government going to do with their policy measures? Obviously, we've seen them extend CERB, um, so that's kind of helped, uh, again, with a lot of people. But again, you know, I don't know if you can defer, <laughs> offer those kind of uh, you know checks to everybody um, forever. So I think it's kind of just figuring out you know who gets their jobs back and, and where things kind of shape up. So I think that uh, you'll probably have a better outlook on the market Um Q4 heading into kind of Q1 of 2021. Steve, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, appreciate it. Steve Soretsky, he's a real estate analyst, vancitycondoguide.com. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's keep talking about the Americans coming across the border in, into British Columbia. I encourage you to check out my global news column on that, which I just posted on Twitter, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S M Y T H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Give me a follow there, please. Check out the column that I wrote for Global News on that. Are Americans really streaming across the border into Canada really to escape COVID-19? I think there's some of that definitely going on. I'm just wondering about the scale of it. I'm getting lots of tweets about it. Uh, Richard says to me on Twitter, yes, they are in the South Coast. We saw a motorhome with California license plates yesterday. My daughter takes the ferry every day. She's a frontline healthcare worker. Uh, she has to wait behind lines of Ameri- uh, vehicles with American license plates, towing trailers, kayaks, boats, not on their way to Alaska. Hmm, okay. I, and here's another one. This is from Vaughn on Twitter. 
I saw some Oregon license plates pulling a motorhome on Vancouver Island. They're going to Alaska? Really? Here's the other thing to keep in mind, though. There are lots of Americans who are legally here in Canada. They're married to Canadians. They have work permits. They're allowed to be here. You're allowed to drive a vehicle in Canada with American license plates for up to six months and probably even longer right now with some of the backlog at ICBC due to the, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So if you see someone with an American license plate in their vehicle, it doesn't mean that they've necessarily snuck across the border to go on vacay in British Columbia. But you're certainly hearing lots more about that, including from Premier John Horgan, who has really kicked this one up a notch when he said he is hearing about this from communities across the province. He wants the feds to do something about it. Have a listen to John Horgan here. It's not just in Vancouver hotels. Uh, I represent the west coast of Vancouver Island, and I was speaking with uh, the local uh, chief of the Pachidat, and he tells me that uh, there was a license plate from Texas and a license plate from California at the uh, Port Renfrew General Store. And if you're heading to Alaska, you don't go through Port Renfrew. So we're concerned about uh, this uh, phenomenon, and we're hearing about it in communities right across the province. I've raised it with uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Christian Freeland, uh, and I'm hopeful that she'll take this up with uh, State Department authorities. For 15 weeks, I have maintained and others have supported me across the country that our borders need to remain closed until the United States demonstrates that they have a handle uh, on this uh, pandemic. Uh, It's so critically important to British Columbia. We have worked very, very hard to get here. Frontline workers, healthcare workers have put themselves at risk to protect all of us. And we do not want to throw that away for uh, queue jumpers, for people who want to uh, say they're going somewhere and, and do something else. Uh, if you want to get to Alaska, we don't, want to, we don't want to impede you, but you should go directly. Do not pass go. Go directly to Alaska. Okay, Premier John Horgan, he's really digging in on that one and has been uh, repeating that on social media the last few days as well. Now, if you take a look at some of the statistics from the Canada Border Services Agency, does it do the stats really back up what Horgan is saying there? Now, out of a typical weekly flow of people across the border, now the number of border crossings are way, way down, of course, with the restrictions at the border to non-essential travel. But there is still a lot of border crossings going on. So in the month of June, in a typical week, 200,000 border crossings, according to the Canadian Border Services Agency. Over half of those were truck drivers. Uh, delivering essential goods to Canada. They're allowed to cross the border. About 60,000 were Canadians and permanent residents of Canada returning home to Canada from the United States. And about 35,000 were American workers in critical exempt industries like healthcare workers. There are a lot of Americans who actually work to cross the border into Canada to work, and they're allowed to do that legally. So that is most of the border crossings according to the Canada Border Services Agency. So if this is really happening, is it happening in large numbers? Let's check in with Richard Curland now. He's an immigration lawyer and policy analyst. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Hi, Richard. Hello. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do, you think of the, what do you think of this issue? Uh, it is an issue. Uh, I think you're bang on uh, where the evidence demonstrates it is not a swarm. It's yeah. uh, not uh, an uncontrolled trend. It does exist. Uh, yeah. We can take measures against this uh, with uh, some fancy electronic toys, profiling, and uh, what we like to say a little intrusive search into those cell phones and uh, laptops. Uh, the Canada Border Service agents, Manning, 
our front lines in this country are highly educated, well-trained, and they took the job because they want to protect Canada and help people. So uh, these individuals have the craft, have the skills to separate wheat from chaff. Uh, they know when they encounter uh, an American seeking entry to Canada uh, what the story is. How likely is it that they will take at face value, oh, I'm headed to Alaska? Yeah. Uh, unlikely now. Um, uh, are, are the numbers of concern? I say yes. I say yes because of Dr. Henry and Adrian Dix's continuous updating and upgrading of information on how well British Columbia has done vis-a-vis COVID challenges. We can't allow, the same way we can't allow a screen door and a submarine, Americans to come up willy-nilly uh, particularly uh, where they state they're destined to First Nations uh, territories uh, to, to go scot-free and, and uh, make a mockery of our laws. So that's the big picture. Um, there are uh, practical ways of uh, preventing this. My favorite way, after hearing what you've said this morning, is to dip into the traditional immigration policy toolbox and bring out those electronic bracelets. Uh, the same way Ms. Mung uh, can have her physical presence tracked uh, in British Columbia by way of an electronic bracelet, so too should CBSA officers who have serious concerns regarding the credibility or verifiability of the statement, I'm headed to Alaska, to uh, take a deposit, hand over an electronic uh, monitoring device for the person or the vehicle, and uh, track away. Uh, people will right away realize, uh-oh, we got a problem here. <laughs> our our well-crafted plan to say uh, Alaska, we're out to Nome, and, and they get caught on Vancouver Island in an yeah. indirect route, uh, they're, they're going to get caught. So Canada has the tools. Uh, there's also the dynamite. If on inspection at the port of entry, the CBSA officer, border services officer, forms the opinion that the fellow's not telling the truth, has misrepresented the true intention, the true destination, the true travel plan, well, that could lead the administration of the immigration uh, system into disrepute. It's certainly a violation of our quarantine uh, act. And uh, the uh, officer can decide, guess what, buddy? You're banned for five years from ever applying to come to Canada. That has serious consequences. That's one of the key things, I think, to keep in mind is, yeah, you're right. It is very serious consequences for lying to a border official or breaking Canada's Quarantine Act. You could have massive fines, jail terms, or like you said, a ban from entering the country. So that's what I wonder if, if people are really doing it in large numbers. On the other hand... When you take a look at the COVID-19 numbers south of the border in the United States, you mm. can certainly see there could be a motivation for someone to say, like, I want to get out of here for a while. Maybe I'll go chill out in Canada. They seem to have a better handle on it. So oh, certainly there's a, a motivation to do it. In the past week, uh, I, I, I've had emails and calls treble uh, from individuals physically present in the United States wanting to get out of the COVID storm. And they they intend to seek sanctuary in Canada any way they can. 
And I have to push them back saying, no, no, you got to follow the rules. And here's what two week quarantine means. Here's the cost for that in Canada. And I don't think you're an essential uh, service or worker. So you're not coming. You got to crunch down and find an alternative to U.S. policy regarding COVID. It's not pleasant. Desperate people will do desperate things. Um, here's one I was working on just before uh, we got on air. Yep. It's a Canadian citizen with a Canadian son, and the Canadian citizen and son are in the United States, but uh, the mother uh, never became Canadian, is, is not a U.S. citizen, and needs a visa to enter Canada. How do they get out of that COVID storm in the States to safety in Canada? These are the daily concerns. Will they say we're driving to Alaska? That's, that's the moral hard part. Yeah, uh, morally, the ends may justify the means, but at what risk to BC's population? So our premier is perfectly right uh, in, in bringing Ottawa to count and explain why we're uh, packing airplanes that are being uh, brought into yeah. BC, why our borders uh, could use extra resources at the border services officer level to ensure BC stays safe. Uh, and and uh, why uh, our uh, immigration system cannot provide uh, technological solutions such as uh, more electronic devices, more reporting requirements, just to cover uh, the bridge for the next six months until the COVID storm passes. All right, back to our discussion about Americans crossing the border into Canada. My guest, immigration lawyer Richard Curland. Your calls too. I'm mean, got lots of calls. Let's go right to them. Wendy in Delta. Hi, Wendy. Oh, hi there. Um, seriously, what do they say at the border when um, a family's coming across, uh, you know, with a, a boat and all the gear? And, um, I mean, cannot Canadian immigration be a lot stiffer? Like, I think what Oregon's doing is, is great. Okay, you know? do you think they're... Be- Richard, what do you think about that? I mean, are the border officials being tough enough here? Yeah, Wendy's got a great question. Uh, I don't think that boat's coming in. Period. Yeah. It, it's not essential. This is a vacation. So uh, problem solved. Uh, If the boat does come in, uh, that means they've convinced the border service officer that they're about to spend two weeks in quarantine in Canada and will, after that, head on out to a happy vacation. I I don't think uh, that entry is going to be permitted at the land border. Okay, let's go to Dave calling in from Kelowna. Hi, Dave. Hey there, Mike. Nice to be on the show. I listened to CKNW when I lived in the Lower Mainland, but we've been in uh, Kelowna for about three years now. And I can tell you, uh, just in the last two weeks, that the amount of traffic coming through uh, the Okanagan has increased substantially. So lots of out-of-province, lots of people from Alberta, and I understand that people have residences here in Kelowna as well. Um, but uh, just kind of scooting about close to my uh, my neighborhood, I've seen... California plates, I've seen Colorado plates. Now, I know, like you said, is it is it a swarm of people? You know, probably not, because people could be, you know, driving rental cars. There are people who are dual citizenship, you know, and they go kind of back and forth or whatever. Um, but there, there are a lot of people that are traveling. The beaches are full. The wineries are, are doing their best. But, you know, I one of the places where I saw the Colorado plate was in uh, a winery just up the hill from me. Um, I did Google the shortest route from... Uh, Kelowna or even from Colorado to uh, Alaska and it's not it's not through Kelowna it's through Alberta but uh, okay, I mean, we, do have a be- we do have a beautiful province <laughs> thanks thanks a lot for the call I appreciate it I mean it's not illegal I mean you can drive a, a, a vehicle in, in 
with American license plates legally in Canada, and in some cases for up to up to six months. So, Richard, is it, is it not mm. conceivable that there are people who are legally in Canada, maybe they're permanent residents, maybe they're married to a Canadian, they're here legally, and they're driving their car with American license plates legally as well? Yeah, an American license plate doesn't brand you as someone who's done something wrong right. at all. Right. However, it may uh, give reasonable suspicion for local law enforcement to check, stop the person, and verify when, when they entered uh, Canada, the circumstances, and uh, what they said their intended destination was to the uh, border guys. No, okay. no harm there. Okay, Mike in New West. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing? Good, go ahead. <clears throat> I just want to say, first of all, I'm, I'm uh, in support, obviously, of uh, um, a tight border uh, during this pandemic, and I think it's essential, uh, considering the amount of cases in the States. But yes. what uh, what bothers me is the sort of I'm, I'm observing a bit of hypocrisy uh, with respect to border security right now um, from a lot of people, obviously, in, in our community, and politicians, media. Uh, so right now, border security is a good thing. But as far as the United States, the, the immigration, the illegal immigration on, this, on their southern border, um, the criticism about that has been is completely the opposite. And, um, in fact, the pres- President Trump uh, w- moved to close the southern border out of concern of the spread of COVID, and he was criticized for it. But in this case, it seems to be okay, right? Like okay, to, Richard, your, your lock, thoughts well, on yeah, that? Absolutely. Down, right? um, uh, you know, cards face up. I, I'm, I'm citizens of two countries, Canada and the United States, and what I see here is Mexico begging for a wall. To protect against Americans going down into Mexico. It's that bad right now. So in terms of the loose southern border of the United States and how it impacts Canada, absolutely negligible. Uh, when Mexicans enter the United States, it's not in the overwhelming majority to find that magic path to Canada. It's to settle in the United States, so it doesn't ring my bell. Tom in North, uh, North Van. Yeah, we keep pounding on the Americans, but I hear we got thousands and thousands of people coming into our airports from other parts of the world where you know, Corona is out of control as well. And, and quite frankly, I'm a little concerned about people coming to B.C. from Ontario and Quebec where they're having mm. huge issues with Corona. So um, it's great to keep pounding on America. It seems to be the sport of the day, but uh, we got to look internally and at other countries as okay. well. And let's just okay. make this a global event. Richard mm. Curlin, we've got 30 seconds. Uh, caller is absolutely right because this is the first year in 20 years that I am not taking some time in August back to Montreal, Quebec, because I will not go into the airports in Ontario and Quebec for COVID reasons. So the caller is right. bang on. Can we guard against trampoliners? No, we cannot. Thanks for coming on today. Pleasure.